Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. I just want to welcome all of you here at uh, Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online in the Calgary area and beyond, and, and also those meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and uh, Crowfoot uh, in Northwest Calgary. You know, I just love this weekend. Um, you know, the weekend that we turn our clocks back, um, because with that extra hour of sleep, everyone just seems to be in so much, um, they just seem to be much more upbeat in a better mood. I, I, if you notice that, just people smile more. And even better, everyone shows up on time. Yeah, I know you thought you were late and you ended up being a half hour early. Wasn't that cool? Doesn't that feel good to be on time, you know, even a little bit earlier? Anyways, I'm just giving you a bit of a hard time. So over the last couple of months, we've been in a series we're calling The Pursuit of Simplicity. And as we come now to the final message, I'm wondering how many of you would say, I've taken at least one step to simplify my life? How many of you would say that? Uh, yeah, we got some takers. How many of you would say, I haven't yet, but I intend to as soon as things slow down and simplify? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to admit that either. How many of you would say, you know, I'm not into simplicity. I, I thrive on chaos. Hmm, yeah. But seriously, we've been looking at what the Bible says about simplicity. And a number of you have told me, You've been challenged by this series of messages. But again, I'm wondering, have you in fact made any changes? You see, reading God's word and, and hearing God's word taught in worship services like this is a good thing. But Jesus says just hearing God's word doesn't go far enough. He talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to that chapter. And, and while you're doing so, let me quickly give you the context surrounding that verse. In Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus gives what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's an incredible sermon. covers a numerous aspects of life. And at the end of that amazing, life-impacting sermon. This is what Jesus says. Would you stand with me and let's read this together. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminder Lord that hearing isn't enough I ask Lord that you would teach us today what is on your heart in this matter and you would show Lord show us Lord how this applies to each one of us and Lord we'd have the courage to respond 
doing what you ask us to do. I pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So what is Jesus saying here in this passage that we just read together? I mean, fundamentally, he's saying hearing and doing go together. Hearing alone doesn't go far enough. The Apostle James talks about the same thing. If you turn over to James chapter 1, verse 22, this is what we read there. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now notice James warns us here that if we are content to just listen to the word, to just read the word. And we stop there. We're deceiving ourselves. So how might we do that? Well, one way is, is we compare ourselves with other Christians or perhaps the rest of the world. Even though we know that we're flat out ignoring some significant parts of Christ's teachings and his call to action, we justify our disobedience with thoughts like, well, I'm more devoted I make greater sacrifices. I live more simply. I give more. I serve more than most other Christians that I know. And then when we read a really convicting scripture passage or hear a convicting sermon, we avoid applying it to our lives by immediately focusing on those people who we conclude have a much greater need to hear this convicting sermon than we do. We find ourselves thinking thoughts like, well, I, I sure hope that so-and-so is here to hear this. I mean, they really need to hear this. Another way we deceive ourselves is believing that we're growing spiritually because we have an emotional experience. Your spirit is stirred and you are moved to tears during a worship service. You leave feeling good. You feel so much closer to God. But James essentially says here, if your Christian life is limited to going from service to service, maybe church to church, event to event, in hopes of having one emotional experience after another, but that is where it stops. If you don't live out what God speaks to you about the rest of the week, if you don't love others, if you don't serve others, if you don't respond in obedience to the promptings of God in your life, then you're deceiving yourself. All those emotions and those good feelings that you have when you go from one event, one worship service to another, all those emotions and good feelings are little different than the emotions and good feelings that you have when you're at a hockey game and your team's winning. Like the Flames did last night. A further way we can deceive ourselves is thinking we grow spiritually because we felt really convicted by a sermon or a passage that we studied at our community group. 
But you see, being convicted or challenged to change is not the same as taking action to change. You can feel challenged every week to change. But nothing will change if you don't exercise faith and do what you feel God's calling you to do. There's a difference between this feeling of conviction or this feeling of being challenged and actually acting on it. You're like the smoker who sees a television documentary on how smoking causes cancer and a host of other uh, health issues. And he says, whoa, man, that, that, that really shook me up. I, I got to quit smoking, but he just keeps on smoking. You see, he's heard. He's even felt convicted and challenged, but nothing changes. In verse 23, James describes the problem this way. He says, it's like you get up in the morning, you walk in the bathroom, you flip on the light, you look in the mirror, and you think to yourself, oh my, this face needs some work. (laughs) But instead of actually giving your face some loving attention, you get dressed, you go off to school, or you go off to work, oblivious to how scary you look. (laughs) Your coworkers or your fellow students, they, they look at you, And then they look at you again. And they see your unshaven, your unwashed face, and your hair all disheveled, those crusty little things still in your eyes. Bad breath, ikes. And they say to you, are you okay? Did you sleep in your car last night? How are things with you and your wife? You see, in our day-to-day life, if we know our face needs some attention, we do something about it. We don't show up at work, freak everyone out, and say, you know, please pray for me. I'm just having the toughest time taking care of my face. No. When we know our face needs some work, we just do it. And yet in our spiritual lives, we often know that there are things that require our attention. Perhaps our marriage needs our attention. Or our family needs our attention. Or our finances need our attention. Or there's a relationship that's gone south that needs our attention. And we know what the Bible says about what we need to do. We've heard all the sermons in the world about what we need to do. We've heard the promptings of God about what we need to do. But often we don't do what we know we need to do. And we say to our friends, you know, I know I need to deal with this situation or this area of my life. Would you just please pray for me? And you know, that's a good thing. But I'm afraid too often it's just another way to put it off. Another way to avoid dealing with it. To not take responsibility and to do what needs to be done. And back in Matthew 7, Jesus says, if you keep putting it off, if you keep avoiding putting your faith in action, one day your life's going to implode. It's going to crash. You will reap what you sow. On the other hand, says Jesus in Matthew 7, 24, You see, this is his real heart for you. If you hear these words of mine 
and you put them into practice, your life will stand firm and it will thrive despite what hardships, what circumstances, what storms come your way. And in verse 25, James adds this. He says, you will be blessed. You'll be set free from all of that which is preventing you from being what God wants you to be. And you will be blessed. That's God's heart for you and me. You will find rest for your soul. And a life of simplicity. Let me illustrate why this is so important. A number of years ago, I read the story of a man named Jim who, who knew the truth, but decided to ignore living out that truth. Jim was a successful businessman. Married to his college sweetheart, Jim and Sandra, both were blessed. They were blessed with two children. And before their family and friends, they affirmed their faith. And they promised to bring up their children in the way of the Lord. But as the years passed, life became more full and complicated. His business grew rapidly, demanding more and more of his time. But Jim justified it, convinced it was all for the greater good. If he invested more of his energy and time in the business now, he reasoned, one day they'd be financially free. They'd be in a financial position to enjoy the good life and all of the rewards of the good life, including more time be able to spend together as a family. Then his business competition began opening at 12 noon on Sunday and Jim felt that he had to follow suit in order to remain competitive. This meant even greater demands at work, less time for his family, and regular church attendance for him was no longer an option. Well, after 10 years, life became a rather predictable affair. Eat, sleep, work, after-school sports, church occasionally, and on rare occasions, a night out with Sandra. But Jim's motivation to take Sandra out was waning as well. All of this focus and energy and stress related to his work was beginning to affect his marriage and his family. The kids were spending most of their time with friends because they weren't together much as a family anymore. When he thought about his relationship with Sandra, it seemed to him that she was becoming less affectionate. She was becoming emotionally detached, totally consumed with the kids. And on more than one occasion, he caught himself giving undue attention to some of the younger, attractive women at the country club that he was a member at. And then Jim's imagination gave way to action. And he had an affair. When Sandra found out about it, she was devastated. She asked him to leave. His children wanted nothing to do with him. And Jim's crazy busy, upwardly mobile life, pursuing what he thought was the good life. And the road that he thought would ultimately lead to freedom and a life of simplicity now became more complicated, more cluttered and complex than ever, leaving him living, living alone and utterly miserable. 
You see, even though he knew the truth along the way, he made decisions not to live out that truth. Rather than giving attention to the spiritual part of his life, praying with his wife, giving focus to his marriage and to his family. Jim chose to ignore what he knew to be true and to give his life to lesser things. He believed the lie. And in time, the decisions he made and failed to make caused his life, his marriage, and family to implode and left him utterly desolate. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Years ago now, a woman approached me after a service, totally broken, sobbing uncontrollably. She told me she knew the biblical warning about marrying someone who doesn't share your faith. But you see, in her 20s, she chose to ignore that warning, convinced in her mind that they could have a good marriage, they could have a healthy family despite not being on the same page spiritually. And then between sobs, she told me the rest of the story of how now her teenage children, like their father, were rejecting the Christian faith. How lonely she felt, not only in her marriage, but her family, unable to share with her husband, now even with her children, what was most important to her, Jesus Christ. So do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I think of the story of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Samuel was a priest of the Lord's, a righteous and a godly man who was looked up to, admired by all. However, Samuel neglected to properly train and discipline his sons. He knew what he needed to do, but for reasons we don't know, he neglected this responsibility. I mean, he was faithful in every other area of his life except his role as a father. And the Bible says his sons grew up to be scoundrels. And in the end, Eli experienced great pain and shame because of this. So do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says Bill Hybels tells of the story of his dad whom he said was faithful and disciplined in every area of his life except one diet and exercise 1 Corinthians 6.20 says do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And Heibel says his dad knew the truth of these verses, but for whatever reason chose to neglect them his entire life. And he died of a massive heart attack at the age of 53. So do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Friends, we need to understand that God is not our enemy. He has our best interests at heart. He loves us more than we could love our own, our own children, which as a father is hard to fathom. Even his negative commands are given to us for a positive reason. He wants what's best for us. And so when you hear God speak to you about neglecting your relationship with him or about holding a grudge against someone or about taking debt seriously and being content with what you have or about investing your best in your marriage and family or about getting out of the bleachers of apathy and being on mission for Christ. And you're tempted to ignore him. You're tempted to delay doing what you know God's calling you to do. Remember, his heart's desire is not to burden you. His heart's desire is to bless you. His heart's desire is to see you set free from all that keeps you from being who he created you to be. From experiencing ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. To see you live life, experience life to the fullest. And yes, to warn you and me that if we decide to ignore him and what he's asking us to do, there will be a cost. So let me summarize this series. The key message of this series on simplicity has been this. If we wish to break out of a lifestyle of complexity and pursue one of simplicity, the most fundamental decision we must make is what is the one thing I'm going to give my life to? Simplicity begins with making a decision about what is most important to us. For you to live is what? There isn't a more important decision in life because it impacts every area of your life. Your values, your priorities, your lifestyle, your relationships, how you use your time, how you use your money, your eternal trajectory, everything will be affected by it. But here's the thing. Having made that most important decision, your life will not change. You'll never experience the life of simplicity you're looking for you won't grow in your spiritual life or any other area of your life if you don't act on what is most important to you. As I said last time, if for you to live is Christ, and you really mean that, then you need to prayerfully evaluate all aspects of your life, whether every area of your life, including your relationships, your, your, your time, your financial decisions, are pointed toward the one you say is most important to you. You need to ask yourself questions like, are my closest friends on the same page that I am with respect to what is most important to me and to God? Outside of work, am I investing my time in those things that are most important to me and to God? Are my financial decisions aligned with what I say is most important to me? You see, you can believe all the right things. You can say, for me to live as Christ, 
But unless you actually do what you believe to be true and important, there will be no change in your life. If I were to talk to you a year from now or five years from now and ask you how you're doing, you would still say to me, you know what, I feel exhausted, I feel overwhelmed, and I'm stressed out. I really do need to pursue simplicity in my life. Nothing will have changed. And one day you're going to look back to all the times you could have chosen differently. But you didn't. And regret having missed God's very best for you. You know, I'm told that something like 80% of people in the United States say that they're Christians. And yet we ask ourselves if 80% of the people in the United States, if they are genuine Christ followers like those we see in the early church, surely the United States of America as a nation would look different than it does now. I mean, isn't that true? I wonder if the reason this is so, not only in the U.S., but also here in Canada and elsewhere, I wonder if this is so... Because far too many people are hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. I wonder if far too many people attend services, watch services online, listen to sermon podcasts, rate sermons for their biblical accuracy and effectiveness take copious notes, debate the fine points of doctrine in their small groups, but at the end of the day, give little thought to living out what they're hearing God say. And friends, as your senior pastor, I don't want us living this way. I want us to take what Jesus says here seriously. I care too much about you to not challenge you with this. I'll close with this. Phil Calloway tells the story of a fellow named Bob who one Saturday went to a yard sale in his neighborhood and he started to sift through the junk. And then something caught his eye. It was partially hidden under a tablecloth, but the shape was unmistakable. It was a motorcycle. In fact, it was a Harley Davidson. Bob asked the owner if it was for sale, and the owner said, ah, why not? And he agreed to sell it to him for $35. They shook hands, and Bob headed home with this motorcycle. Now, the motorcycle, obviously, for $35 was in bad shape. And so Bob decided he was going to try to fix it up, and he called Harley-Davidson to see what it would cost for parts. The dealer asked him for the serial number and put Bob on hold. When the man came back online, he sounded different. He suddenly sounded really engaged. Listen, Bob, he said, could you take the seat off your motorcycle and, and see if anything is written underneath Bob thought that was a strange request, but he said, sure. So he went and did as the man asked. 
came back to the phone and said, well, yeah, there is. It says the king. There was silence. Finally, the dealer said, Bob, my boss has authorized me to offer you $300,000 for that bike. Payable to you immediately. Do we have a deal? Well, Bob was stunned. He said, well, I'll have to think about it. His hands were just shaking. <laughs> the next day, Bob got a call from Jay Leno, who upped the offer to 500000 You see, the motorcycle that Bob had redeemed from the scrap pile had been owned by the king, Elvis Presley. Neither Bob or the former owner recognized what they had in that bike. The value of the motorcycles, the value of motorcycle, of course, wasn't in the metal, it wasn't in the parts. I mean, the thing didn't even run. Its value came from the fact that it had been owned by the king. Now, here's the thing. In God's eyes, you and me are worth far more than a Harley-Davidson. I mean, look what 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that we are. And that we are. Amen? God saw something in us of infinite value. He loves us so much that even while we were yet sinners deserving of God's judgment, God didn't cross his arms and, and, and sit back on his celestial couch and say, hey, you're on your own. You made this mess. You live with your mess. No, God took the initiative. God always takes the initiative. He took action. And he made a way for us to be forgiven and to be reconciled. For us to live life to the fullest, what he intended for us in the beginning. You know, John 3.16 does not say, God so loved the world that he sat idly by and let us face the judgment of hell. No, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God took his best. He took what was most valuable. He took what was most precious to him, his one and only son, and he allowed him to die on an accursed cross for you and for me. He purchased us. And he wrote his name on our hearts. We're children of the King. If you've embraced Jesus by faith, you belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He cares for you. He wants you to live this life to the fullest. Now I remind us of all of this to make this point. Some of you have heard God speak to you about your broken marriage or your hurting family or an unhealthy relationship that you're in. You know that this relationship is not God's best for you. 
some of you have heard God speak to you about a person that you're holding a grudge against or a mountain of debt that you have or about the way that you're spending your time and money. And you're thinking, I know what I have to do, but I don't have the courage. I don't have the strength to do what needs to be done. Well, my friend, I'm here to remind you that you are not alone in this. That we are not alone in this. No, He is with us. In fact, He is in us. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and to me to do the things that He's calling us to do. We're not alone in this. We are not by ourselves, no. Our loving Heavenly Father is with us. He is walking with us. He's empowering us to do what we can't do. Oh, church, I challenge you to surrender to Him. Just give your life completely to Him. And you will find true rest for your soul. He will guide you. He will empower you to live a life of simplicity. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand? I'm going to invite you again to open your hands to the Lord. I've been asking two questions for some time now. First one is, Lord, what are you saying to me? But you see, that question by itself is incomplete. There's a second question. Lord, what do you want me to do about what you're saying to me? Take those two questions to him right now. Let the Spirit speak to you. Father, we praise you today for being our all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. We praise you for your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace. We join the songwriter in singing, you are rich in love. You're slow to anger. Your name is great. Your heart is kind. For all of your goodness, oh Lord, we will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. We bless you, Lord. We worship your holy name for all that you've done, for redeeming us through your sacrificial death on the cross and empowering us with the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. Lord, we don't want anything to come between us. So we ask that you would forgive us for those times we've gone our own way rather than your way. Those times we've been hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. Forgive us for the times we've not involved you in our day. Those times we've taken your love, your grace, and your presence for granted. Cleanse us from sin. Renew us by your Holy Spirit, O oh God. 
that we may perfectly love and magnify your holy name. We ask, Lord, that you would bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine, that we receiving them may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.